This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Pfizer, working to deliver breakthroughs that change patients' lives. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The emergence of the novel coronavirus has presented huge obstacles for people living with cancer and the healthcare workers who care for them. In this segment, cancer survivor and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan joins us to discuss his new book, Still Standing, Surviving Cancer, Riots, a Global Pandemic, and the Toxic Politics that Divide America. Let's listen. Welcome back. I'm Frances Tietzel as a senior writer at The Washington Post, and very pleased to welcome this, this morning Governor Larry Hogan, Republican from Maryland. Governor Hogan, you were in the news today uh, with an op-ed you published in The Washington Post. I promise I'll come to that, but I would like to first start by talking to you about a topic you haven't talked very much about, and that is your experience with cancer. So welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. You've just, you have a book coming up, um, coming out called Still Standing, um, about not only cancer, but also dealing with the pandemic, with the rioting following the death of Freddie Gray, and also with the toxic politics in the country. You were diagnosed with cancer five months after taking office. How did you receive that diagnosis of such an aggressive form of cancer? Well, it was uh, it was kind of a big surprise. I had uh, I had just won, I think, the biggest surprise upset in America. Uh, I went through our first legislative session. We had uh, survived, had gone through the riots in Baltimore. I'd been governor for five months. We had, we were on our first trade mission. Uh, a trip to Asia where we went to uh, to Korea, China, and Japan, and I noticed a lump in my throat. The first time I realized anything was wrong, I came back and had doctors uh, tell me, uh, that three doctors walked in a room and told me that uh, I had very advanced cancer, uh, that it spread all over my body from my neck to my groin, and uh, that began a, a long saga. Um, I first had to tell my, my, fam- my wife and my family, and then uh, my staff and those uh, close to me, and then I had to tell the six million people of my state who had just put uh, put the state in in in, in my now uh, fairly shaky hands uh, that uh, what I was going to be dealing with, and and um, and I was able to share that with folks to let them know exactly uh, what was happening. So so let's take those those steps step by step. You had to tell your wife, your your South Korean wife, Yumi, and your three daughters, and you chose to do that before obviously telling. Uh, others, and that was following a biopsy. Tell us about telling your family. It's an intensely difficult experience, I imagine. Well, you know, I think a lot of uh, people that go through this experience with cancer, the people around them, um, they also suffer. And and I was actually more worried about um, about my family and how they were going to feel. I wasn't so worried about myself at first when I got this diagnosis. My first thought was, um, you know, how am I going to explain this to the family and how do I keep them from being too worried. I had some pretty uh, scary uh, news from these doctors and the prognosis was pretty uh, pretty tough. It, you know, I had, I think, 50-some tumors uh, all over my body, which was a complete surprise to me. I had some aches and pains and I'd been feeling a little run down, but I had no idea about this growing cancer in my body. And, uh, you know, so I first, um, I, I've first went home and told my wife um, and, 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 you know, talked about how we were going to get through this together. It happened to be Father's Day weekend. And um, so my, my three daughters and my son-in-laws were happened to be coming over and we kind of shared the news with everybody. Uh, it was kind of a group hug and a little bit of tears. And, you know, I, we all, you know, the, the, they said, you know, what can we do? And, and I told them we're going to get through it together. And then, uh, you know, my 
my uh, dad, who was in his 80s, was coming over that weekend for Father's Day. And I told him, and, you know, it's, it's uh, when you get this kind of news, it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, I was still his little kid to him. And uh, he, I think he felt a little helpless that um, he, there was nothing he could do about this. But, you know, I think people go through these kinds of battles with cancer. Um, you often don't think about how it impacts the rest of the, the family. And so I, I have so much uh, compassion for uh, not only the people that go through these very difficult battles with cancer, but the people that uh, support them and are, are fighting right alongside them. But after I told my family, I then, um, you know, had to tell the rest of the folks uh, in, in, on my staff, the lieutenant governor, and my 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 cabinet, my my uh, the folks that had worked so hard to 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 put us in office and to get us off to a good start, and and then uh, I actually had to do a biopsy surgery, uh, and um, after the surgery, they they told me I should just go home and get some rest, and instead I held a press conference. Um, I was still a little loopy from the medication, and they advised me not to do a press conference, but I went out and told the people of Maryland exactly what was happening, uh, that I was going to, like everyone else who battles cancer, I was uh, I was just going to fight through it and work as hard as I could and continue to do the job that they elected me to do. And, I was going uh, to ask you. Yeah. Apologies, Governor. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was going to ask you about about that meshing of political and personal messaging. I mean, you went out. It's an extraordinary passage in your book. You went out to do this press conference. How did it rally people behind you? What was the response from not only the press people, but the, those who read about and heard about and watched your press conference? Well, I was incredibly uh, moved. Um, you know, by you know, you, obviously you have the love and support of your family, but. I was I was moved by the the, the way that uh, you know some complete strangers uh, you know really rallied behind and and encouraged me throughout the way. But I gave this news to the public at a, a packed uh, a press conference uh, filled with uh, reporters. You know sometimes reporters can be a, a cynical uh, bunch and and they're not often um, you know cheerleaders or or uh, big supporters of people in elective uh, position. They usually just ask the tough questions. Uh, in this case, they, they did ask me some tough questions about, um, you know, was I going to have to resign? Uh, you know, was I going to survive this or what, what would happen? Uh, what was the lieutenant governor going to take over and things like that? And I, I just tried to give them all, all the answers as straight as I could. But when I finished, uh, when I finished the press conference, uh, you know, I actually I noticed a few of the uh, reporters and cameramen had tears in their eyes and and uh, the whole uh, room gave up and gave me a standing ovation. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I haven't ever seen that happen again since that from a room full of reporters, but it uh, it nearly brought me to tears, and uh, it, it was right. it, it, that was just the start of of having tens of thousands of people um, out right. there encouraging me. And I, I've tried to do the same thing for so many other people who didn't have that kind of support, or maybe people didn't know what they were going through. Right. You write in the book very movingly um, about your experience in hospital. Um, you went in for these very intense bouts of chemotherapy. And in many ways, of course, you had a very privileged a a approach. You were able to contact the best doctors in the state to start with. But after that, you were being treated among everybody else. And you met people, you write about the people you met, a, a young man with Down syndrome, a woman from the area of Baltimore that Freddie Gray came from. How has that experience affected your governing style? You know, that's probably one of the things that had the biggest impact on me. Uh, I, I was, you know, it didn't matter if I was governor or not. I was a fellow cancer patient, and 
I was in, uh, I, I did these uh, very intensive rounds, I think five different types of chemo that was, I was getting, uh, you know, 24 hours a day uh, in the hospital. And um, I, I really couldn't stand lying in the hospital bed, even though I wasn't feeling so great. I just wanted to get up and move around. You have a, a chemo pole with bags hanging down. And I decided to drag that pole that had wheels on it around and do some laps around the floor of the uh, of the cancer ward there. And I got a chance to meet so many of uh, my fellow uh, cancer patients. And uh, you know, one of them was a young man named Jimmy Myrick Jr., who was a a young man with Down syndrome who had an incredible personality. And, and, and one of them was a woman who was from West Baltimore, but I met literally hundreds of other cancer patients. I, I even went down to the pediatric oncology ward to try to spend some time with the kids and their families to see what they were going through. And it's, um, you know, it's really made a difference in my life. And, uh, you know, I had always cared about the uh, issue of cancer and I'd been to cancer fundraisers and, and supported the cause, but, I really got to know some of these folks. I met uh, some incredible kids. Uh, we did a number of events and, and took young kids out to uh, some football and, and, and baseball games. We got them to meet the players and and uh, I, I went and visited them in the hospital. And um, it's a it's an experience that um, you know I'll never forget and and I'll never stop uh, you know fighting to uh, raise uh, awareness and raise money and, and until we can find a cure for some of these terrible diseases. One of the uh, other aspects of the book I couldn't help noticing was that you were obviously left with a very compromised immune system and came out of hospital unable to shake hands readily with people. You tried the elbow bump. And in some ways, this experience was a preview, I, as I read it, of what we're going through now, the inability to reach out and touch people. How has that experience informed how you're, you're managing personally and, and talking to other people ab about the pandemic, about social distancing? Well, I hadn't thought about that until you asked the question, but you're absolutely right. It was uh, it was the precursor to this. Well, you know, we, it, this was uh, back in, in 2015, and and I'm a guy who really loves to get out and meet people. And I, I would go to crowds at, uh, at, say, the Baltimore Orioles baseball game, and I'd shake hands with thousands of people, and I'd, and I'd hug them, and I'd go to huge events. And, and, I, and I thrived on that and enjoyed it very much, getting out among the people across the state. And I had a very compromised immune system. Not only had a cancer of the of the, of the immune system, uh, but then with all the chemo driving down my white blood cells, uh, the doctors were scared to death of me going out, and I kept ignoring their advice and going out, shaking hands and taking pictures. and And uh, I remember a, a time when one of the uh, Adam Jones, who was an outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles, gave me some batting gloves. Uh, he went in the dugout and gave me some batting gloves so I could. Uh, I could go out and shake hands with that, but uh, I was trying to get people elbow bumps, and this was long before the coronavirus. Uh, but now I'm, I'm I'm doing everything I can to message to people how important it is to wear masks, to not shake hands, to stay as much as you can uh, six feet away from each other, and to avoid large crowds. And it, 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 I hate not being able to be out in crowds, and I, it's very it's still awkward to not want to shake somebody's hand when you see them or or have that kind of interaction, but it's critically important to us as we're battling uh, the spread of this coronavirus. You have written and published this morning this harshly critical um, op-ed about the way the administration has handled the crisis so far. Uh, what was your goal in telling this story, which is a combination of personal experience and political experience? 
Are you intending to galvanize Republicans um, in an anti-Trump movement? You say that the president's uh, lack of leadership was so hopeless, and I'm reading here that uh, it was condemning citizens of the state to suffering, more citizens of the state to suffering and death. Well, uh, the, the um, I, I wasn't trying, didn't have any intention at all of or purpose of, of galvanizing anybody. I was just recounting and telling the stories as, as I saw them. Uh, as uh, directly and honestly as I could. I wrote most of this book and, and turned it into the publisher back in February, and it was due to come out uh, several months earlier. Uh, I put it on hold and asked them to stop because we were in the middle of the crisis. And then the publisher asked that they wouldn't delay it any longer until July 28th. They asked if I would add uh, some, of the, uh, some, some new chapters about what we're going through right now. Uh, what we're dealing with on the coronavirus and this, what we, I've been dealing with as a governor and as chairman of the nation's governors. And I, this is just a very factual and honest account of, uh, uh, of my perception of what's going on. And uh, the Washington Post ran an excerpt of that uh, in this morning's paper. But uh, this was early on in the crisis where I just believe that uh, the federal government uh, could have and should have had a national uh, testing strategy and that they could have taken action sooner, that uh, the president could have been communicating more directly and, and, and more honestly with the, uh, the people of America, and that would have put us in a better position. Uh, but look, I, I, that, that's a snapshot in time. Uh, we are, they have made strides. We are doing better. They are doing better on, on testing. They've done a good job of communicating with uh, all of us as governors. And, and uh, I, look, we're all in this together, and we are doing better with the federal, state, and local government uh, who are all in this and, and are all trying to serve the same people and all trying to keep people safe and get our economy back on track. I know we've reported this before, but you actually uh, took the, went to the steps of um, protecting supplies that you had imported to this country from the potential of their being uh, used by the federal government instead of for Maryland citizens. How does that sit with you now? I mean, uh, can you trust the federal government to uh, not to take away supplies that you had imported? I don't think we have that issue anymore, but you know, in the, in the really early stages of this crisis, there was tremendous demand uh, for all of these life-saving things like tests and personal protective equipment, ventilators, and very constrained supply worldwide. There was no real national strategy on any of that, and the federal government basically uh, I'm paraphrasing, but they basically said the states are on their own and the governors have to go out and, and fend for themselves. And so we had uh, 50 states and the territories all out there competing with one another and competing with the federal government on a national and international market, trying to desperately acquire things that were uh, very hard to find uh, and, and there wasn't enough of. And so we took an unusual step of, of, of having to just go out on our own and acquire some a test from uh, from South Korea, uh, and uh, we we were making sure to protect those tests. We're continuing to work with South Korea on a number of things. We've acquired some great testing machines. We just built a big lab at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. We're actually uh, getting uh, upgraded and new and improved testing from from South Korea, and we have a great relationship with them. Um, but every state was fighting for all these supplies. We were actually competing with the federal government. And in a few instances, the federal government um, 
basically stole uh, supplies from other places. There was a there was a situation where Governor Charlie Baker in Massachusetts had bought, I think, uh, you know, 3.6 million masks that were coming in, and the federal government uh, took the airplane and, and and took them and shipped them somewhere else after they'd already paid for them, negotiated for them, and flew them into the country. And then he had to do it all over again. I think he had to use the uh, the uh, New England Patriots plane uh, to go and get another supply and bring them into his state without getting confiscated. So, uh, so we, Governor Hogan, these are extraordinary, extraordinary experiences. What are the implications for your support in November 2020? What what does this mean for you? Will you be supporting well, President I, you know, Trump? I, I think we're going to, this is really not about uh, politics. I'm just really sharing uh, the experiences about what we've been through because I think uh, I think people will find it interesting and I think it's important for people to have uh, another perspective and an honest discussion about what what some of the things that we had to deal with but uh, I, this is not really about politics there's been some speculation about that we have an election to get through between now and November but I'm really busy uh, focused on my, doing my job here as governor and um, and dealing with the twin crises of of the coronavirus and our economic uh, collapse and and I've still got a very important job to do here in Maryland until January of 2023. I think we're going to have plenty of time to talk about uh, after November. Uh, both parties, I think, are going to re-examine um, where they are and where we go and, and, and what we can do to move the country in a, in a better direction. Do you plan to run in 2024? I think it's far too early for that. I mean, I like I just mentioned, um, we're, we shouldn't even talk about 2024 till we get past the election of 2020, and it's a long way off. Uh, again, I've still got to, until 2023 to be governor, and we have plenty of time to talk about those things later. But it's really not about me trying to uh, run for higher office. That's not the purpose of the book. Uh, I, I, I just thought I had some some things to share. I hope people will find it interesting. I hope people who have been through cancer battles um, will, will 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 find it uh, encouraging. And, and um, I, maybe people will find these stories interesting about how we overcame some adversity and 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 won some pretty big upsets and and maybe accomplished some things as a Republican in the bluest state in America you know, through bipartisan compromise. And I, I just think people will find the book interesting. It had it wasn't any ulterior motive in writing the book. <laughs> so. Um... Going through cancer has given you an experience of the healthcare system. How do you think, and you've also had this intense experience of working with it through the coronavirus pandemic, what kinds of changes do you think are needed going ahead to make sure that we can provide the kinds of personalized care that you experience in cancer and also avoid the, um, the public health crisis that we've been going through? Well, with respect to the public health crisis, I think we've certainly learned a lot uh, as we've gone through this. And it, uh, not time to you know spend a lot of time just Monday morning quarterbacking, but I think when we get through this, we ought to look to how do we prepare uh, for the next time that this happens? Because um, I think being better prepared is going to help all of us. I, I don't think the federal government was prepared. I don't think the states were prepared. The hospital system, uh, hospital systems weren't prepared, um, and we were all caught. We didn't have the uh, any of the uh, necessary uh, equipment and supplies and. Uh, we didn't really have a plan for this. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we kind of all knew that there was a possibility of a global pandemic. And there were some smart people that were thinking about it and planning for it. But I don't think we were ready. And hopefully next time we will be. Uh, with respect to access to quality health care, it's critically important. Um, you know, I, I, I was lucky. I'm, I'm in, not only am I uh, governor of the state and uh, as a state employee, we have a good health 
insurance plan, but I happen to be in a state where we've got some of the best best healthcare in America and uh, some of the best hospitals. And and I was blessed with uh, some incredible doctors and nurses and 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 a team of people that were uh, you know some of the best in the world. And not everybody has access to that. And especially where this is a discussion on cancer, um, when people are going through something like this, we got to make sure that they're they're all able to get the treatment that they need. Another group of people who have um, struggled in the past few months have been healthcare work workers. What should the government be doing to better support healthcare workers? Well, it's really important. First of all, uh, my um, my very sincere uh, appreciation uh, goes out to those frontline healthcare workers. I've gotten a chance to thank some of them personally, and I want to thank any of them that are listening on here today uh, for the incredible sacrifices that they made. They really are uh, the heroes of this entire uh, pandemic and have been working under incredibly trying circumstances, not only uh, sometimes without the protective equipment that they need, working around the clock with uh, under very trying circumstances with overloaded hospital systems and, and overflowing um, ICU units and sometimes without uh, the, the proper equipment. But they're also dealing and worrying about how to keep themselves safe and their families safe. Um, I, you know, I, I think we've got to do everything we can to protect them. One thing that we're really uh, concerned about, uh, the, the, the states, just like many of the small businesses and the economy is uh, taking a tank, is being tanked, the states are having tremendous shortfalls, uh, perhaps as much as 30% loss in revenues. We're pushing the federal government uh, to try to make sure that uh, we get some assistance to the state and local governments. We don't want to be, we've already lost 1.6 million state and local government workers. These are frontline uh, you know, workers that are needed more than ever, like people in the healthcare system, like our teachers, like firefighters and police officers and people that are out there providing services and unemployment offices and helping yeah. people in need. And so we need that federal stimulus package. We need the fourth stimulus bill and that's what we're pushing hard to do. So you, you have a, a state, as you mentioned, with some of the most uh, important um, hospitals in the country, University of Maryland, where you were treated in Hopkins. Um, what more can be done to bring together the needs of the general public, uh, the, pu the public health needs and uh, the, the, the services provided by those hospitals? You know, one of the things was just making sure that we have act everybody has access to health care. We've done a couple of interesting things. And during my uh, term as governor here in, in Maryland, you know, we've had this issue of trying to how do we make sure that we uh, give uh, health care coverage to as many people as we can and people that were left out of the system. So I fought hard to uh, protect and, and maintain and make sure we kept hundreds of thousands of people able to access their health care. But there was a problem in that um, health care costs were skyrocketing out of control and health insurance premiums were skyrocketing every year, putting uh, health care coverage out of reach for a number of people. And we did uh, a couple of innovative things here in our state, working together with uh, our legislature in a bipartisan way, uh, where we did a, a reinsurance program for um, uh, higher risk things, where the state invested some uh, money, but we were able to lower health insurance premiums uh, two years in a row. Uh, and I think uh, after 10 years of going up and provide, you know, co providing coverage for more people, uh, providing uh, better access and lowering costs. And I, I think really we should be addressing these things at the federal level. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of debate back and forth, but we've got to get the, the administration and leaders in Congress on both sides of the aisle to come up with a, 
a way to uh, to to provide coverage, uh, to provide the access, but do it in a way that's more affordable. Are we talking about uh, a version of Obamacare? Well, the problem was Obamacare did a great job on expanding access, but Obamacare yeah. did a terrible job on costs, which is why the cost drove up. And the Republicans said we have to get rid of Obamacare without a plan to replace it. The Democrats said Obamacare is great without a plan for how to reduce the cost. Uh, we, we uh, as usual, took the approach of let's look at fixing the broken system. Let's not throw out the people that need the coverage, uh, but let's lower those costs and uh, so that people uh, you know, aren't making decisions about do I pay my health insurance premium or do I feed my kids or pay my bills. I think I have time for one last question, which is one of the most important ones, I think, for working parents around the state. What's your plan for reopening schools in Maryland this coming year? It's one of the, we've dealt with so many important questions and challenging decisions throughout this um, crisis, but this is one of the most difficult. Um, we are, our state superintendent of, of schools and our state school uh, board is going to be making those decisions. They're gonna, we, they put together a plan about a month ago, a very detailed and thoughtful uh, plan that laid out uh, some guidelines. They are now, they've also taken into consideration the guidelines from the CDC. And they're getting uh, input from all of our county uh, school boards and school local school systems uh, to so to make make sure that we make the right decision. Um, the we want everyone wants to get our kids back to school as as soon as we can, but we also want to make sure that we only do it uh, in the way that's the, the safest possible way to keep our kids and our and our teachers safe. And we're going to figure that out here in Maryland. We're going to come up with listen to the public health experts. Uh, we're going to get all the stakeholders input and we're going to provide some flexibilities to our our local jurisdictions, our local school boards to be involved in the process. Great. It sounds as if I'm hearing a message from you that you're putting the public health advice from the scientists first. And that's thank you We've very much for joining us. Thank you thank so you much. I appreciate much. it. Really appreciated hearing from you on such a wide ranging set of topics and appreciate your taking the time and uh, congratulations on being five years out from your cancer diagnosis in 2015. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.